0: Hello, Dennis. Hello, Vitruvius Jr.
1: Uh, oh, that's a new nickname. I haven't had that one before. Yeah, I'm sure
0: most people have never been called Vitruvius Jr. outside the architecture world. But today we're going to talk about Vitruvius, who hey. was an ancient writer on architecture. What does it have to do with liturgy, you might ask? Well, You're about
1: to find out. You'll have to find out. And we have a shout-out for two new Patreon supporters. Shout-out. Christopher Meyer and Keith Nicholson. <sighs> so thank you for your support. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com liturgy. Where does that money go, Dennis?
0: It does not go in the idiot fund. Okay, it goes to the actual costs of running this podcast.
1: Absolutely, and does so, not
0: go in my wallet either. And,
1: well, that,
0: no, it doesn't. Oh yeah, that's right. It doesn't, it doesn't. at all. I get so, paid zero. I actually lose money on this deal, but our listeners but listeners are totally will not worth lose it
1: because this is an amazing episode. Yeah. So without further ado, episode thirty-five of season three of the Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the mass. The
0: liturgy is what enculturates the gospel
1: for us. Buddy, some kind of altar boy?
0: And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep.
1: The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys.
0: Do you know what this sound is?
1: I bet you guys at home would not, you'll never in a million years guess what that sound is. Well, you know what day it was the other day, Jesse. Yeah, June 7th. That was my son's birthday. But it was also International Note Donut Day. Well, just National Donut Day. When is International Donut Day? I don't know. I think that UN has to decide that, but <laughs>
0: the, uh, I, bought an, I brought in a dozen donuts for which you can profusely thank me now. And I think we
1: ate approximately 11 of those. And the thing I just banged on the table
0: was the multi-week old... Donut.
1: we're just wow. we're doing that Twinkie test we're gonna see how long it lasts before it's a, like a biohazard yeah no, we
0: just, was just sitting there on our little worker kitchen
1: table there's like just nobody nobody,
2: nobody wanted to take the nobody last one.
1: was throwing it away and uh, nobody was eating it see how they love each other the because these things too. they get better with age mm-hmm you mm-hmm. know what else gets better with age wine cheese no I thought you were just gonna launch into some type of academic discourse well I was but you interrupted it by dang it that question darn it <laughs> You know what gets better with age?
0: I don't know, Dennis. Chris? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) No, he's gotten worse. His beard (laughs) has gotten better, though. Yes. Uh, Vitruvius has gotten better with age. That was my next guess. V I T R. Wait, that really
1: was your next guess? (laughs) No.
0: V I T R U V I U S. V I T R U V I U S. Now it's time for
1: Vitruvius. That's a throwback to a few episodes. L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Now it's time for the Liturgy, guys.
0: (laughs) Yes, tolerant, smiling look from Chris at the two of us for being ridiculous.
1: So who was that guy? I've heard of Vitruvian Man. You have because he was the one who
0: came up with that idea. Vitruvian men is that drawing famous, made famous by Leonardo da Vinci, where you see the naked dude in the square and his mm-hmm. arms are outstretched and his height from his head to his toes are the same as his fingertip to fingertip when his fingers are, arms are out straight. And that was something that he learned from the ancient writer named Vitruvius, but Vitruvius never drew the picture, at least that we know of. He just so talked about it? He talked about it and then... And that guy is not necessarily Vitruvius either. It, no, the picture is not Vitruvius. Okay. It's the person, it's the proportions of the human being that Vitruvius figured out. Now, Vitruvius lived from 70 BC to 25 AD. Oh, so, I'm mean, sorry, time. 70 BC to 25 BC. Sorry. Oh, I was that's gonna, not okay. so long. Yeah, not so long. But the thing about Vitruvius, <laughs> among other things, is he is the only guy who wrote a book in the ancient world about architecture for which the book still exists. So it's we know called that, the spirit of the liturgy. No. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't give it a name, but it's, there were ten of them, ten books. Um, so they called it the ten books on architecture by Vitruvius. And he uh, needed
2: a better editor on that. That's Yeah, not I very, know catchy. it's not very catchy, right? Get the, Kevin the, on that. The
0: ten books, but in in, yeah, in Latin they call it de architectura, right? Like, oh, that sounds like good a idea. lot of the philosophical philosophical things, you know, de musica on music, you know, de yeah. anima on the soul, just on architecture. And he was Greek, but he was living in the Roman Empire, yeah. and
1: he dedicated the book to the emperor. And he was frustrated by all these bad architects around him, you know. What the heck? <laughs> that sounds familiar. If I I think I know somebody like that yeah, anyway. Well,
0: anybody who knows anything is frustrated by the fact that most people are worse at it than the best people, right? This is the ninety <laughs> ten rule or the ninety five <laughs> five rule. Most
1: people are worse at it. All right, I like it. Yeah. It's I good. mean,
0: if you think about the best one percent of the practitioners of anything from, you know, haircutters to artists, uh, technical writers. Liturgical the 99% of them are worse than you, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Fortunately, we're all in the top 1% here, so we don't... Yes. one const- constantly easy. frustrated by those who aren't. But anyway, so he's um, in the Roman Empire, but he's formed by the Greek culture and the Greek language, so he, he's claiming that he knows architecture better than all these young punk practitioners. You know, this is the first century B.C., and uh, they hadn't really written out rules of architecture before, so they had to figure out what are they? Where do they come from? What are the names? So he'd said, dear emperor, whoever, I'm writing this book so that you can have better architecture. We won't do any of those stupid things that the young people are doing today. This is the continuous situation. He sounds like nobody. a boomer. Well, yeah, there is that. It's just
1: sort of like... No vents to boomers. Yeah. <laughs> or to young <laughs> boomers.
0: <laughs> but the key thing is, you know, it's not perfect. It's not considered, you know, faultless. But it's the only book on architecture to survive from the ancient world. So therefore, it was the only one that was operating in the time of the early church. It was the only one at the Renaissance, and then later... It's so it kind of became a standard, you think? Yeah, it's been in print, so to speak, since that day. I mean, before printing presses, I mean, it would, they know it was in medieval libraries, and they made references wow. to it. And you see little references here and there in some early Christian writings to the, some of the same ideas, not necessarily that they're quoting Vitruvius, but they'll talk about some of the things he talked about beauty. So is it the Greek culture and beauty that's coming in two places or they're reading Vitruvius? It's hard to know, but they do know for sure that some copies were in medieval monastic libraries and so they were around for a long time. So the question is, why does this
1: matter? Because it's old? Maybe. Is it good? I like to think it's better that it's good than it's old. What about, is it universal? Which I think is probably pretty important.
0: Well, like a lot of things from the classical world of learning, the idea is that they figured out some stuff because they had to figure it out for the first time. You know, we don't really argue about truth and beauty and all that stuff anymore. We just do what we're (laughs) always doing. (laughs) I mean, we argue about it, but I mean, the world is just out there sort of doing, oh, that's what the schools teach us, that's what the profession's doing. But, you know, philosophers have to think about what is the best, what is the truest, what is the beautiful, especially the beginning, they have to catalog everything. Like, what's a column? Where did it come from? What do the names mean? So he's the one who gave us a lot of that. Interpretation of what the different kinds of columns mean. Columns are people. Where they came from. That's the from. answer to that one. Well, columns are people, but partly we say that, and I say that because Vitruvius said it. He flat out tells the origin of some of the columns and that they're based on the measurements of people and that kind of stuff. So um, that's why we still talk about it today. But he was also a theorist, and because he was a smart guy, you know, he... Um, Wanted to talk about the theory of architecture as well as practice. And he was one of the first ones to separate out theory and practice. Yes, Chris.
2: I just want to ask you so you're an architectural historian, is Indeed, that what it is? I okay. Am, yes. So it was this, uh, you read this
0: in uh, graduate
2: school? Grade school. And, I mean, was this, this is a pretty standard must know inside and out for somebody in that field?
0: Yeah, if you were studying Roman architecture, you would probably read Vitruvius. But I don't think in the field of architectural history, people say, oh, this is the thing you have to know to be a competent architectural historian. To me, it's much, I read it much more in the line of the history of ideas, mm-hmm. where probably most art historians would be like, "Oh, you're studying ancient architecture. You should read Vitruvius because he talked about ancient architecture and he was an ancient writer." Um, but it was never presented to me as any kind of source of transhistorical truth or reality. It's just like, "Oh, it's just another old guy's hmm. book to read." So, yeah, interesting. Good. I see it in the longer sphere of things. Well, here's a test for you, Chris, and maybe you, Jesse. Mm-hmm. He says something um, in the beginning of his book, pretty early on. It's chapter one, paragraph three of book one. No, you're not allowed to cheat. All I right. at my stuff. I'm trying to go sneak a peek. Yeah, I think I actually asked you this question somewhere once before, Chris. But he says, in all matters, particularly in architecture, there are two points, the thing signified and that which gives it significance. What is he talking about? There's the thing signified or the signifier. And that which is signified, this translation is a little funny because it says the thing signified and that which gives it significance. But what am I talking about here?
1: Is it an architectural, um, is it something that is an architectural element? Well, or? he
0: says in all matters, but particularly in architecture, there are two points. There are things that signify and things that are signified. Sounds like a sacrament to me. It sure does for a really? guy in, yeah, who's dead by 25 BC. So remember, that's incredible. I know, isn't it? So wow, you have to think about an early Christian who's like, well, yeah, things mean things, and people are columns, and Peter, James, and John are called columns or pillars of the church. And Galatians chapter two verse nine, how uncatholic of me to have the mm-hmm. a, uh, a Bible verse memorized, but the column ones are good. Psalm one forty four. What does Psalm one forty four say? Uh, you are like columns. <laughs> Kind your of,
2: daughters are like yeah, gra- yeah.
0: graceful as columns. That was awesome, Chris. May yes. your daughters be graceful as columns adorned for a palace, right?
2: See, we shouldn't be surprised too much about this, uh, right? Because sacraments are just supernatural symbols. And so everything that we believe, well, not everything, but what we believe about sacraments have a precedent on the natural plane. And that's just precisely what Vitruvius is, is laying out. Right. So
0: it's a proto-sacramental worldview mm. or a pre-sacramental worldview. So you can imagine if you were a scholar of architecture in the first or second century and a Christian you'd be like whoa this really makes sense you know we have all these buildings in the Bible that are described with number and meaning and the Temple of Solomon signifies heaven and earth and plants and gardens there's the idea of the thing and then there's the thing that allows that idea to become knowable to the senses well these these uh, famous uh,
2: lines from Christ about uh, whoever has seen me has seen the father and Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God and he's the very imprint of the father's being and so he, he kind of shows up as a sacramental sign of a Trinitarian
1: reality. Right. This is fantastic. I was just about to be like, all right, Dennis. What like, does this I have know, to do with it? I know again? you like architecture, but what does this have to do with liturgy? Exactly. And That's that, why we need Chris here to bring it up. That makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense, and it actually makes me understand a sacrament better.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the basic sense, a sacrament is some unknowable spiritual reality that is made knowable to the senses by the use of matter and somebody's intentionality. So you sing the Sanctus, you hear the sound of heaven, that's a sacrament for the ear. You touch the hand of a sick person and you bring them peace of Christ, that's kind of a sacrament for the sense of touch. And we're used to it more for the, for the eyes, I guess, and images and icons and so on. Of course, the Eucharist is for the, the taste, I suppose, or the strength of the, the soul and body. And so that basic reality that somehow there's a parallel that's also real between heaven and earth, And it's made efficacious through the action of the church. So you called it what, a sacramental symbol? What did you say? A spiritual symbol? You said a sacrament? Just now? Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. (laughs)
1: So symbols by definition. Oh, a
2: supernatural symbol. Supernatural supernatural
0: symbol. symbol, That's it, right.
1: So symbols by definition. So Chris is not getting better with age. Okay. We have proved that. (laughs) In the last three minutes, he's gone downhill. (laughs) So was this, um, this kind of sounds like it touches on something that I hear, Chris, I hear you say a lot about how all of this is actually a very human aspect of what, what we are. This is something we as humans would naturally try to do is try to explain things by using matter and using things that we already know and have ability to do. Well,
2: think where this conversation started with uh, Leonardo uh, DiCaprio, or Leonardo uh, <laughs> da, Vinci. da Vinci's uh, Vitruvian Man and about mm-hmm. these natural proportions. So, yeah, I, I think uh, what you say is, of course, you're right. Kind of referencing me, so of course I'd mm-hmm. agree with that. Yeah, that there's a, a very natural human dimension to the things we do supernaturally in
0: the Catholic faith. Right, which makes sense because God wants to know, wants us to know things in the way that we know things. Right, He can't show up with some kind of immaterial stuff and say you're supposed to perceive this when we don't have.
1: Capability to perceive it. We perceive through our senses. But furthermore, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, this tells us something about God. Exactly. So it works
0: down to say, okay, God has given us some kind of enlightenment. But then you can work up and say, in scripture it says God gave everything number, measure, and weight. So then when you start measuring things and you say, oh, well, you know, the human body fits into a square and the height and width are the same and it's a one-to-one ratio from left to right, top to bottom, and that's one-to-one is a correspondence between things. Mm -hmm. Then you start saying, well, this tells us something about the mind of God. So not just nature working up, but then human intellect. And so, you know, if you keep reading Vitruvius, you know, he he thinks architects, he's trying to establish that architects are different from craftsmen, you know, builders, because architects work in the area of theory. So he says, what an architect needs to know It's all kinds of stuff. Um, What does he say here? Geometry, drawing, philosophy, medicine, astronomy, optics, mathematics, and history, believe it or not.
1: Hmm. Why would an architect need to know medicine? um, That's a good question. (laughs) I was trying to come up with some BS answer, but I I can't even do that. Even you can't do that? Well, if you think about health, right? Mm -hmm. What's a healthful
0: place to build? Do you build in the the bottom of a damp, Mm. shady valley, or do you build on the sunny, dry side of a of a valley so that you're not in the area where like fog and smog mm-hmm. you would collect or how much air do you need in a house to, so that people can be healthy. I mean, we have all these things standardized into codes now, but back then you would... You'd have to know. You don't just build wherever. You build where it makes sense. And wherever. we have a
1: hallway in this building that's meant to like ventilate all the germs between the infirmary and the old convent. <laughs> that's right. Before they had um, antibiotics, it was just fresh mm-hmm. air. Let's
2: <laughs> use windows. Yeah. Well, didn't they say uh, some of the citizens in ancient Rome uh, kind of went crazy because they were drinking uh, water out of lead pipes or right right like that. or so, out of
0: the Tiber with all of the animals, yeah. disease and stuff. I mean, the,
2: the architect would need to know that he shouldn't use that
0: type mm-hmm.
2: of uh, <coughs> material next time. I right.
0: Guess he wants to keep. People healthy, and because lead poisoning takes, oh, you know, happens over time, they didn't really know. Hmm. And so I wonder
1: who you know, led him to believe well, that those would be good materials to use in pipes. Do you know good? what the uh, the symbol of lead is
0: on the periodic? Oh, panel? it is
1: LB. Nope. Oh, hold on. No, I don't know.
0: It's PB. P- oh, that's PB. where we, That's why people who work with pipes are plumbers because the lead. No kidding. You didn't know that. No, oh, I didn't oh, know that. PB. It's plumbus or something like that. So. That's why plumbers hmm. work with pipes, because oh, pipes used to be lit. My gosh. We learned something on one of these podcasts. This is awesome. Hang finally, after, after episode <laughs> 153. More often. Oh, that's, right. Huh, so, cool. you know, geometry makes sense, right? You want to make buildings of proportions that are pleasing. But even that would come out of the order of the universe. And so a Christian would say, well, you, you have God who reveals himself through the logos, right? Who's the ordering principle who's knowable, and then you start to say, well, what's the order and principle of beautiful things? What is the meter in poetry where you have a certain number of syllables in relation to others? What's the proportions of, a, of a, an attractive person? What's the proportion of uh, music, musical harmonies? So that's why they have to know music and philosophy, because philosophy would have been the study of the knowledge of things. Drawing, of course, makes sense. Astronomy, interesting too. Like, how would you know how the sun is going to move around? Where will the breezes be? So weather... And then mathematics would be for not only the measurement of buildings, but also for the cost of the building. And then he says history is important for um, an architect, too, because they have to be able to explain why they did things. Which is weird, because you'd think <laughs> you just explain it so it keeps the rain off your head and doesn't fall down, right? But saying if you're going to make choices based on precedent, because the wisdom of the past age comes forward, you can't just do that any old way. You have to do it in the way that makes sense. So. He talks about Caryatids, for instance, which are those columns that look like women—they women's heads. And he said, you can't just use those because you feel like it. You have to use it because you need to know where they came from and use them intentionally. And so, you know, the history of where that came from, and it's the same thing today. You know, if a church wants to build a church that looks like a church, you don't just say, let me make up something, you kind of look to precedent, look to history, see what other people have solved the problems that you don't have to solve yourself. Mm-hmm. So history is part of any wise sense of... Of moving forward so this is the classical or you know the sort of liberal arts version of what the architect does it's not so much about the, the statics of physics or how pieces come together that would be more of the side of practice and he says an architect should know practice but practice doesn't make you an architect architects should know practice
1: so and practice makes you perfect and
0: eventually it does <laughs> did he uh, besides writing
2: uh, uh, books or this book in ten parts whatever it is on architecture did he
0: you know, did he build buildings? There, he mentions some buildings that he built, but they're not—they no, don't exist, so nobody knows. Yeah, in, no I little. built buildings;
1: they're not around anymore, but I built them. <laughs> yeah, my buildings are so good; they're all good, but they're better than anybody else's. Right? What I what I'm getting out of this is not only that the idea of sacrament, but also the idea of order. And uh, if if you even just take that into the theology of things, you, we look at the Israelites, and all that God was asking from them is to help create order out of the chaos that that was going on with the
0: Israelites. Exactly, and he goes on in its chapter 2 to talk about the word order itself. In Greek, it's taxis, T-A-X-I-X. Have you heard of that word anywhere before? Taxis? Not taxis. Well, that might be related, <laughs> like if you order a cat or something. <laughs> Ooh, but like yeah. taxonomy is the study yeah. of the order of animals. And taxidermy. Is that King, Kingdom taxidermy. order thing. Yeah, right. King Philip come out. Uh, and play yeah there's a (laughs) genus in there somewhere yeah genus all that stuff that's taxonomy Hmm. yeah so he says that measure which is the greek word taxis is the due measure of the members of a work considered separately in proportion to the whole so if you're going to make a door it has to be big enough for you to get through and you know height wise and you know width wise wouldn't make sense to have a you know five inch wide door so the door will be kind of a module for the, based on the human being, Then, but then you'll design your room around the standard of that number so your wall might be 10 times as wide as your door, not like 9.38 or something. And then you get this harmonic ratio of parts. This might completely derail the... Oh, uh, go the, ahead. But, you Many have tried, but few have tried. So, so Aiden Nichols good? was no, talking no, no, about... No,
2: no, no, this is worse. This is my brother-in-law, <laughs> Kinesius. who's a a carpenter, a builder, has built some altars here. He was talking about something he had read in the journals about how the the metric system, is what this story said, is less human and won't catch on, especially for us in the West, in the same way that, what would would you call the other systems of measurement? Imperial? Imperial. Yeah, because these uh, imperial systems of uh, inches, feet, and things like that were based upon sort of human proportions and human uses oh, and things like, like that. a foot is a foot right right mm-hmm. or a yard is uh how, how much you can stride or an acre was he he says like how much a team of op- oxen could plow in a day but they're all rooted in this sort of natural human element
0: right. the where it, mile comes from that too it was a thousand steps in the roman empire uh, so okay. that's why you have mile okay. it doesn't mean Five thousand two hundred eighty. It means one thousand.
2: Okay, but these uh, compared to like these metric measurements, which apparently are much more. uh, Maybe they're not unnatural, but they don't have the same consonance as the with our human nature that these others do. And so, again, we are talking about a door that has you know a certain human proportion. And I suppose whether we know it or not, then subliminally, that's why it becomes beautiful, and it just seems right
0: that it be that type of. It's proportionate um, to us, right? So mm -hmm. it, it has proportions in itself. But if you make a 100-foot-tall door, it might be really grand to see, but it would be unwieldy, right? It's too heavy. It's too big. It's, you know, unless you're building a church, would have a slightly oversized door to explain the grandeur of that uh, building compared to other buildings. And so this notion of propriety comes in. He talks about that um, as the perfection of style, which comes with a work that is authoritatively constructed on approved principles. In other words, the theory of what the nature of the thing is is built based on that, what's proper to it. And then you start talking about um, decorum and things being fitting. And then you start getting back into philosophy. Well, what is it? What is fitting to a church? What is fitting to a store? What is fitting to a private home? What is fitting to the palace for a king? And so all of a sudden, it starts going from the visible, the tangible, to the conceptual, but then can go backward and say conceptually knowing a church is important. Then you make a building uh, that fits that importance. So we think of that now. We talk about that. But he's the first guy to... To write it down, at least in a book that still exists, there are there are mentions of other books on architecture from the ancient world in other books, but nobody has ever found them. A copy. And of
1: them. this is all kind of scalable too, because you have the proportions of let's say a single room, and then you have the proportions of maybe a single building, and then like we talked about in our podcast, we built this city, the proportions of a city, and right. you know where certain buildings should be in you know in relation to other buildings and creating exactly. order. So if you think
0: about Washington, D.C., for instance, you know that was a, a planned city from the very beginning. They just found this land in middle little nowhere. And they hired Pierre L'Enfant to plan the city. He was a French guy. And he was coming out of the tradition of Versailles with all these diagonal roads and great vistas and everything. And they put the White House in the center and they put the capital it, in it one place up. and inside these kind of radiating uh, avenues. And then the streets were named after different states to show all their place in the whole. So it was this embodiment in the city of the political... Uh, order of the country. And so the White House was a house and not a palace very intentionally because Mm -hmm. it was a president and not a king and a house of Congress or a house of representatives. You know, house is the American important building rather than the Palais de Justice, you know, the Palace Mm -hmm. of Justice in France. And he goes through all these words kind of one at a time. One of them is eurythmy. Do you remember the eurythmics? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Sweet dreams are made of these. (laughs) <laughs> that's a good song
0: he says that's a relation of beauty and fitness of so the simple question of length width and breadth right so you would say propriety could be proportional to some kind of intellectual concept or just the natural need of how tall is it in relation to how wide how um, um, what long that all those parts are that's just a simple question but that's what he calls eurythmy. and so there's a lot of complicated you know things you go through all these but you know what he is particularly famous for
1: vitruvian her. man well
0: vitruvian man vitruvian <laughs> man it's the vitruvian triad triad oh. you might v- 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 is this is a music thing Vitruvian triad no it is not it's just three things that he talks about every um good building every beautiful building the art of beautiful building you have to have three things working together can you guess what they might be
1: Well, wow. is one of them ornamentation <laughs> nope well oh. that does contribute to one of them.
0: Is uh, one of them Consonancia? Uh, no. But there is something kind of like that. I you learned this depth in 2002 when you were here as a student. From me, I <laughs> remember. Guess not, you did better teach it. Too it. Good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's not a good teacher. Well, that was 17 years uh, ago. <laughs> is it per, like the purpose of a building? Sort of. You won't get it, so I'll just tell you. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> in Latin, it's firmitas. Oh, that's, I would have got. I was about to say that. Commoditas and <laughs> then he's venus, venustas or venustas, depending if you like your modern Latin or ancient Latin. So, but think firmitas. What, what's it embedded in that word? Has to be strong. Yes, firmness, right? So it has to be durable. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's translated as durability. So if your house falls down, but in the weather, it's not a good It's
1: infirm. Right, so it should be strong enough to do what it has to do. That's Unless it's the, an infirmary, then it needs to be soft and built on sand.
0: No, an infirmary is for those who are not firm. Oh, right, you okay, see. sorry. They're not durable because they're sick. <laughs> so um, you have to have it, and it's pretty obvious, right? Strain, strong enough to stand up in the weather and to mm-hmm. do what it needs to do. How about commoditas? Komodo. The commode means, <laughs> well,
1: we all know. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the
0: accommodate uh, is accommodate, Adjectival noun that comes for the you know, Well, yes, it accommodates it's, uh, con- there, Sometimes they translate it in English as convenience But it means that it does what it's supposed to do right? So a, class, a, a schoolhouse has to have classrooms A church has to have the stuff that churches have And a house has to have a kitchen and living room and, and bedrooms and so on So you can see if you make it with all the stuff it's supposed to have And it falls down in five minutes, no good if you make it strong but it doesn't have all the things you need it to have, then you can't really use it. No good, right? This is the classic thing when people have these multi billion dollar projects and the architects are like, oh, we forgot electricity, right? You know, the last minute and then they have to do this <laughs> stuff. Or how could that slip through? You know, the, we the. the electricity. They don't usually forget the electricity, <laughs> but something happens where it was like suddenly there's this last minute like, oh, no, we mm-hmm. didn't do XYZ. Now, the last one. Venustas, or Venustas,
1: What Ven- is in that word? V e n u s. Ventilation? No. V e n u s. Truth? No, no. Ven- V-E-N-U-S. Uh, V-E-N-U-S. 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 Venus.
0: Venus. Yeah, yeah. like the goddess Venus. Wow. Jesse, Jesse uh, uh, got a you on yeah. the one. Oh. What, so what's
2: what's up with the god with Venus? What do you
1: know about Venus, either of you? She's my Venus. <laughs> She's my, my, my <laughs> I is my fire? Is that here. another eurhythmic song? Uh, no, I don't think so, but that's
0: uh, also uh, Venus. Same Venus.
1: What do you uh, know about Venus? Venus de Milo. Well, that's, that's Venus, that's, the planet. Yes, and they're both named for the goddess Venus. Oh, Venus. Yeah, yeah. Venus, the goddess. What is she known for? I don't know. Is it. she, the is she beauty?
0: She's beautiful. Yeah, Mars is the god of war. Yeah, that's why your wife is named Mars.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: I never put those two together oh, yeah, until right yeah. now. Yeah, I I she's not listening and, uh, to this podcast. You should go home and call her <laughs> Venus just to see
0: how that goes <laughs> on. She's this motherly, womanly uh, f- god associated with fertility. Sometimes they'll say comeliness. It means like it's associated with voluptuousness and attractiveness. Not like, um, you know, sort of half-starved kind of, you know, Near person near death, but like a mm-hmm. healthy, welcoming, festive. You know, the, the the god is the goddess is not just named for you know the physical attributes, but she's associated with all those things: welcome, uh, receptivity, fertility, plenty, fecundity. Is a good a good word for that? Fecundity, fecundity. Fecund.
1: Yeah, like fertile,
0: fertile. Right. So oh. you know, good black soil is fecund. You know, you can grow things in it. And so the building has to be strong enough to stand up. It has to have all the things it needs to have. And then it has to have, on top of that, fecundity, beauty, comeliness. It has to be so attractive. It's like the most sort of voluptuous, desirable woman. Of course, this is all written by men in the ancient world, so they wouldn't name, you know, wouldn't say Mars-ness. Mm-hmm. Well, no offense to your wife, Chris, whose name is not <laughs> actually Mars, but Marguerite. So um, how do you make a building voluptuous? How do you make a building beautiful? With ornaments. Ornaments. What do ornaments do? What are ornaments, by the way?
1: They uh, ornaments are things on things that mean things. <laughs> they, <laughs> reveal yes. the they, they reveal the or purpose. They reveal purpose
0: or festivity. That's the key thing. So if you you know make little ribbons and streamers all over your house for a occasion they're indicating, here's the party, the tiki torches on the backyard deck are, are ornaments. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes on buildings, you'll see shields and eggs and ribbons and all kinds of things carved on the building. Um, And so ornament is one way to indicate that. So think of a a woman who's dressed up for a wedding day or Mm. any other like night on the town. There's ribbons in her hair and necklaces. Yeah. And 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 might have like extra clothing. That's more Mm. than just the necessary uh, clothing for working around the house. And so a big giant wedding dress is kind of really unnecessary, right? Who needs all that silk, you know, hanging (laughs) around behind you or feathers or whatever people put on wedding dresses these (laughs) days. The old bachelor here. <laughs> oh, hey, I've seen Say Yes to the Dress once or twice. When I'm home visiting my mom and there's nothing to do, I'm like, oh, there's nothing to watch. Say yes, yes to the Dress. I know, have you ever seen that show? No, I no. have not. I've only seen it a few times. I can't stand it for very long, but there's these bridezillas who have to pick their wedding dress and they bring their friends and family to sit there and they try on dress after dress until they find the one that's so you, Jesse, remember? so mm-hmm. you? Not you. Interesting. <laughs> what kind of
1: wedding dress would you have? I, I I don't have to deal with that issue, so I just wore a suit that I already had. Did you have a boutonniere? I I did. Yeah, you put a flower on yourself, so that's Mm -hmm. a sort of masculine version. I had a microphone on myself. You did, so that I could record. You podcast through the whole uh, whole wedding, (laughs) and I am stepping up to the altar. Dangers of media people getting married. I live tweeted my entire wedding, (laughs) color commentary on their own wedding. Well, this is quite amazing. I
0: know. So. A beautiful building has to be strong enough, it has to be convenient, it has to do what it's supposed to do, and then it's supposed to have this richness of meaning that's so delightful that you're called to it. So this is one of the critiques that people often have about modern architecture, modernist architecture. I was just going to say that because
1: they think matter is bad and then they want to bring about, like order is not something that's even attainable, Mm -hmm. and so now we're moving the needle towards chaos.
0: Right, that's certain branches of postmodern architecture. But if you think about, you know, how interested are modern architects in ornament, enrichment, dressing up the building, you know, bows, ribbons, stuff like that. There's a scientific kind of rational view of things that durability absolutely has to stand up. Convenience, yeah, you have to follow the program, do everything it needs to do. And then, venustas, uh, Fecundity? Me. Yeah, I mean, they would say we make beautiful buildings by solving the problems, you know, of the practical solution, that that's the beauty of the thing, like the beauty of an engineering solution is not to have a lot of classical ornament on a machine, but to solve that Problem efficiently. So, if you have an engineering mindset or a machine mindset, which many of the early modernists did because they said we lived in the age of the machine, then things like Gothic tracery and ornament and capitals with, or, you know, uh, capital carvings didn't make any sense, right? They were not efficient. So, they would use phrases like machine for living in and that kind of stuff. And so, um, that's one of the major differences. In fact, there's a guy named Leon Creer who writes all these little critiques of modern architecture. And he said in the classical world, you needed three things to have a beautiful building durability, convenience, and beauty. He said, in the modernist understanding, durability and convenience equals beauty. Oh. See the difference there? So beauty is when you solve the practical problems. Where so it's just cl- lowering, lowering the bar. Well, yeah, because our world was engineering-oriented and efficiency-oriented, and the machine, or you know, and you could see how ridiculous it would be to put gothic tracery on the outside of a ship. I'm going
1: to go home to my wife tonight and say, you're durable... And you've been a purpose, so you're beautiful. And you're also convenient. You're convenient. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I will be... uh, I think I'll be in the doghouse if I say that. That's right. And we don't even have a dog, so I don't even know. So all this stuff about... Chateau de la (laughs) Barrel.
0: Specificity, right? There's a pre-existing reality. You have to know all this stuff. And then the building has to represent that because you're signifying ideas. There's some of that in, in much of the better modern, modern architecture, but you can think of a Walmart, you know, Walmart, no offense to Walmart, Target, whatever big box store. It has to be durable and probably not even that durable because they don't expect to be in business very long, right? So it has to be mm-hmm. cheap enough to not survive the ages. And then it has to have all the things you need in it, you know, aisles and
1: refrigerators right. and racks. But then beauty, eh,
0: you know. So to kind
1: of circle back all the way around, mm-hmm. I think that donut is pretty durable, but it (laughs) doesn't have the other two elements. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: definitely got fermitas, I would say. (laughs) But it is not very good for eating. It still kind of looks nice. The the glaze is all sort of still there. But let's go to one last thing about Vitruvian Man. That's what you were talking about, that the human body is so designed by nature. This is uh, book two, chapter one. Let's see if I can find it here. And he talks about the human body being designed by nature with a capital... And um, so that it would have these s- s- kinds of proportions. Look at your own, um, your own hands and your own face. Has anybody ever done that thing where they're like, do you know that your hand is the same size as your face?
1: And then you shove it in their then face. They put their, yeah. they put their hand in That's their having face. happened to me like check. 10 times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the idea there is there is a proportion between your hand and your face. And he goes through all the different parts of the body, and he says that it depends on symmetry, that the design of the temple. So he starts talking about temples, which he says are the best buildings. We would just, you know, insert church there. Um, but he says these are all very important because the best temples are those built along the uh, proportions of a well-shaped man. So he's not really thinking like a Christian would think that human beings are created in the image of God and so on, but he kind of gets it that if you see a well-shaped man, that's something that's pleasing.
1: Well, we are that. the body of Christ, so there's something there. Well, right, and that means that all the proportions... And he is the wellest-shaped man.
0: <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> so he says, the human body is designed by nature that the face, from the chin to the top of the forehead and lowest roots of the hair, is one-tenth the part of the whole height. Hmm. Well, down to where your root, the roots of your hair start. Depends where your hair is, what age you're at. But <laughs> and <laughs> Chris has a pretty big head. So, so you're probably ten faces high. So <laughs> if you took the module of your face from your chin to your hair... And you multiplied that by 10, that's probably your height.
1: I, after this, I'm going to go right to Photoshop and try and check this I out. Know, I
0: always tell people if you're having a party and it's not going well, just get out the measuring tape and Vitruvius and start measuring each other. <laughs> oh it's gosh. like playing, playing Twister, you know, so I'm like, oh, let me measure you. And then, now nobody is per- perfectly proportioned like this. Like almost nobody has their hands, the width of their height and so on. I do this in class and, you know, actually take out the measuring tape. And nobody's exactly that. They're all roughly close. But it's one of those things where, you know, as X goes to infinity, it becomes this. Every particular example mm-hmm. is not right. But if you measure enough examples, you'll find this as the, uh, the norm. So what else does he say? The uh, the open hand from the wrist to the top of the middle finger, Jesse, is just the same. The head from the chin to the crown is an eighth of, of that. From the neck and shoulder to the top of the breast to the lowest roots of the hair is a sixth. So basically, if you just draw different lines on yourself, you know, from here to here, from nose to chin, from chin to the middle of your head you'll be like six times as many as those and then you can work it out how many
1: chin noses am i tall well you'll have to figure that one out 20 chin noses
0: chris go get the measuring tape we're gonna do some (laughs) jesse measuring and he says the length of the foot is one sixth the height of the body right so we were talking before about Hmm. your six feet tall that's actually the feet high right not everybody is um but if you actually measure your feet some people have you know clown feet and they're just disproportionate right and they're, they're sort of, feet yeah they have big giant sure you know
1: crusty the clown kind of shoes you, you know my wife kim and she's pretty short she yes. wears size she wears size 11 shoes wow it's hard yeah. to blow her over i know storm, i know, huh? I know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry kim <laughs> she's firm <laughs> durable Here's some yeah
0: so you know that notion that we have proportions from body part to body part is a very interesting thing. Even if you look at your fingers, you know, the first bone of your fingertip with your fingernail is is a certain proportion to the next bone, to the next bone, to the one in your palm, to your arm. And so basically what he's saying is if you're going to build buildings, especially temples because they're the most important, you want to make them imitate the processes of nature. Now he didn't have the Judeo-Christian vision of, you know, the creator God who builds, you know, Adam out of the ground and so on. Um, but he says, in a temple, there ought to be the greatest harmony of the relationships of the parts. And this is where he talks about the Vitruvian man. This is chapter on uh, Symmetry, Chapter 1, uh, Paragraph 3. And he says, just as the human body yields a circular outline, so to a square figure may be found in it. So he says, if we measure the distance from the soles of the feet to the top of the head and apply that measure to outstretched arms, the breath will be the breadth will be the same as the height. So that's it. So, you know, without the picture, it's hard to imagine it, but just stick your arms out to the side, measure that distance from middle finger to middle finger. That should be roughly the height from your foot to the top of your head. And that, if you follow the lines
1: around, would make a square. So if someone called me a square, I should, that should be a compliment. It should be. You're like, oh, thank you. I am in the, mm. in the mm. image of God. Thank you very Talking much. Talking about my proportionality. Thank uh-huh. you very much.
0: Yep. Right. <laughs> and then he also mentions a circle. So if you take your arms and stick them out kind of at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, and then you take a string at your belly button and take the, the diameter of that circle and make a circle around, you fit into the circle and the square, or the circle and the square evident in us. And, um, you know, the square is traditionally an image of Christ because the Son was considered a multiplication of the Father by the, the full gift of self, and then the circle is a symbol of eternity. So it has no beginning and no end, like a line has two ends. But a circle just goes around and around. Hmm. So you have God the Father, who's the eternal, And, of course, the theological implications of Christ being eternal and yet begotten, nobody's really solved. But nonetheless, the square is evident in there. They don't really talk about the Holy Spirit in relation to this. Um, But it's the love between the square and the circle, I guess. Um, (laughs) Which, the result is a triangle. if If a square truly loves a circle, okay. But if you see a church, you know, an old church, and it's maybe cubic in its basic volume so it looks like a big cube and then there's Mm -hmm. a dome on top that's where the circle which is eternity meets the cube which is the multiplication of the square you have eternity and temporality meeting and where they meet is where heaven and earth meet and so on the Eastern Churches are really good at this they're very interested in those kind of geometric proportions Um, and so this is all pre-christian stuff nonetheless you could see how a Christian would just jump on this like whoa the ancient world figured out temples are based on the human, the proportions of the human body. And then mm-hmm. so Judaism comes in and new, Ch- new Testament comes in. It's like, oh, the temple of his body and then you are God's building and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's all this relationship between building and human body comes from the ancient Greek and Roman world. Then it merges with the Jewish tradition of the temple as a, as a body and Christ being the new temple and then you're God's building and so on. So there's a deep theology that comes from these two places, right? Sort of Athens and Jerusalem. And then it sort of mixes up in the Roman world, and we inherit it uh, to this day.
1: Awesome. Yep. Should we uh, Should we record this one then? Think? <laughs> yeah, I press. think this is All a right, good. We're topic. warmed up now. We haven't, haven't asked. Are we
0: recording in a no. few uh, seasons now? Yeah. No. No, now that we're we're pros, we don't no, ask those questions we anymore. Well, <laughs> <so> I still. <laughs> like he just double check there. Yeah. Do you have <laughs> any questions? <laughs>
1: we didn't even talk about columns because he. I do have a question column. though. Okay, good. When you're talking about the cube meeting the sphere, the square meeting the circle is the place where heaven meets. Is that kind of like what an apse is? Because it's kind of like this curved area, and Mm -hmm. then where the cube of the nave meets the apse is maybe where the altar is, or where maybe the communion rail is.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that anybody's ever solved the problem of what an apse is at the end of a church. So if you have the rear wall of a church that's flat, and you see like this half circle with kind of Mm -hmm. a half dome in the back, that's called an apse, A-P-S-E. Um, but you're right, the, the dome and the circular thing is often associated with eternity and also places of veneration, and so you kind of smush uh, a semicircle onto a square and you get the two combined. Um, usually you hear about it in relation to the dome, which is very clearly a full circle over the cubic volume of the church, which is this image of uh, the church. Because in the book of Revelation, St. John has the vision, and he saws. I saw this, heavenly city coming down like a bride adorned for her husband do you remember what its proportions are either of you uh, one by one by one well those are its numerical it's uh, proportions but what, what are its actual numbers it's 144 thousand cubits oh, yes. on each side it's this crazy 12 times 12 12 times 12 times a thousand which is the twelve apostles the 12 tribes and then a thousand in from what I understand and the ancient world was kind of like saying zillion it was a number oh. but it wasn't an actual <laughs> it was a number that meant like more than anybody, anybody could know. And so it's the shape of the apostles, the tribes, then brought to infinity by God. And that was what heaven is described as. But basically, it's, a, it's an infinite cube. And so the cubic church is us, right? The, the many members of this infinite number of people brought back to God. And then the circle being the dome with the internal movement. And so Vitruvius uh, is not saying that, but the Christians eventually figured out what this is all about.
1: I think and our third album should be called Infinite Cube. Infinite Cube. Oh, I like it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. All right. Well, uh, we should answer a question. Chris, you love that, don't you? That's good. A good 80s band name. Yeah. You should, you should be in an 80s Q. cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Liturgy guys. You, you can't define us. We're an infinite cube. Infinite cube.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, question time? Mm-hmm. Vitruvius. Can, I can be, we ask a Vitruvian question?
1: Yeah. Well, But first, hand me that donut. I'm going to take a bite and see what it tastes like. <laughs> oh, never mind. Oh, all the frosting came out. <laughs> that is one hard donut. Yeah. <laughs> You think Morgan will eat that? I don't think so. Morgan's our intern. Hey, we have hey shout out to Morgan, our summer intern. She's pretty Morgan, awesome. Morgan, summer intern. Yeah, she's not in here, but she got she's doing good work for us. Absolutely. From Loris College, right? Yeah. yeah. The best college in the, the world. Do hawks, Morgan? Do what? Do hawks? Um, okay, there you go.
0: That's the end.
2: So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the Church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
1: Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care?
0: Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
1: Guess what, Jesse? We, we have another question this week. No, well, yeah. The question it, is from... is from D. McNamara, no, Dennis McNamara. Yes. Or Dennis M. Yes, that's, that's me. For anonymity. Right. Well, you know, we have
0: our lovely, active, busy, wonderful summer school going on. Yes. And this week coming up is the week of Solemnities, which mm-hmm. is, there's a whole bunch in June. Saints Peter and Paul. Well, there's Saints Peter and Paul. There's a whole bunch of them. Chair Peter, is Corpus happen? Christi on Sunday. Oh, Chair Peter. And Peter's then it's later. followed by the Nativity of John the Baptist, the next oh, yeah. day, which is also a Solemnity. But then on Friday, the 28th of June, is the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and that's a Solemnity. Then it's followed by Peter and Paul, which is also a Solemnity on Saturday, which is followed on Sunday by Sunday, which is always a Solemnity. <laughs> And so when you celebrate the Liturgy of the Hours and other things like vigils and stuff, usually a solemnity is so important that it starts the night before. So you do what's called Evening Prayer 1 the night before the feast or the solemnity. So you would do Evening Prayer 1, say, of Peter and Paul on the day before, except
1: the day before is
0: the Sacred Heart of Jesus. which has its own evening prayer. So you have the evening prayer of Sacred Heart, which you would normally do on that day, except that the next day is also solemnity So do you do the anticipated evening prayer one or do you do the evening prayer two of that day? And so there are a whole bunch of these all in a row. You
1: know who would know the answer to this? Well,
0: that's what I did. I
1: called Chris. This is legit (laughs) happening right now. Dennis is legit asking Chris this question. Well, he answered it it for
0: me already, but uh, he knows the secret magic table. Oh, that although he's told me about it many times, I'm too lazy to go look at it. So I call him instead.
1: (laughs) Is it called the table of contents?
0: (laughs) What is this table, Chris? It is called the table of liturgical days. And it tells you which ones hierarchically stay and replace others and Mm. all that. So all Mm -hmm. these odd little things like leap year problems and whenever things Mm. come up where things conflict, you have to go in the hierarchy of the feast. And so Chris is the master of this table. Oh, it, it is very complicated, but this is these these are really kind of fun, oh, nerdy.
2: By the questions. way, yeah.
0: I called Chris and answered this question. He was like, hello, oh, you again? Then I explained the problem. He's like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's the coolest liturgical question. And I could just hear on the phone <laughs> this big smile on his face. All right, face. so what's the answer? Uh, the answer is, so
2: this table of liturgical days, which is uh, I call it part, of, part of what's the, called the universal uh, norms on the liturgical year and calendar, ranks, as Dennis says, you know, the most important to the least important days. And so what would you expect to be at number one of, so the, of the, the most days, important days of Easter, the year, Easter. The Easter Triduum, right? right? So that's number one. Nothing ever trumps Easter Triduum. And all the way down through uh, special Sundays, solemnities, feasts, memorials, uh, certain weekdays, mm-hmm. and then weekdays in ordinary time. But what uh, the problem is that, <clears throat> that this uh, question brings up is that the, uh, what were these, uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus? Nativity and- of John the Baptist, Corpus Christi. Saints and- Peter and Paul. Yeah, they're all on the same ranking. So they're number oh. three. Solemnities inscribed in the general calendar, whether of the Lord, the Blessed Virgin Mary, or the saints. So but what you was would the, think
0: that the ones of the Lord would trump the ones of the saints. But you they, would, but they don't apparently. You would. So what was the first uh, uh, conflicting thing? That was well, Corpus Christi was Sunday. But Nativity of John the Baptist was the next day. So okay. you do EP2 of Corpus Christi, Evening Prayer 2, or Evening Prayer 1 yeah. of John the Baptist.
2: So when you have a tie in this, there's a, number 61 in this uh, table. It says, uh, should vespers of the current day's office and first vespers of the following day be sane, uh, assigned to the celebration on the same day? This, so the, what are you going to do on Sunday night is the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, then vespers of the celebration with the higher rank takes precedence uh, but they're in, the same rate in cases of equal rank vespers of the current day ah okay so on Sunday when it's the feast of Corpus Christi evening prayer that night will be for Corpus, Corpus Christi. Christi and you won't have evening prayer one for uh, John the Baptist that will start at midnight on the next day. That makes sense. But if, John, if
1: the
0: nativity of John the Baptist had been on Tuesday, then you would have done mm-hmm. evening prayer one on Monday for John the Baptist. Yeah. It's just that it conflicts as it moves around the, the weeks.
2: Yeah, and it's same then when you get to the next Friday, what, that Friday is Solemnity of the Sacred Heart right. of Jesus, and then Saturday it's is Peter and, Paul. Peter and Paul. That Same every year, though, because it's uh, 28 and 29, right? No, because uh, Sacred Heart of Jesus is Friday after... Oh, it's not uh, a fixed number date. Correct. It's a Friday. Right. Okay, yeah. got it. So on Friday night, you'll do uh, evening prayer Two of uh Sacred Heart. Jesus, and then Saints Peter and Paul will begin.
1: Uh, what would happen if the, next the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus fell on the Feast of St. Peter and Paul? Mm. One of them would get bumped. huh? <laughs> now that's, that's,
2: that's <laughs> a great <laughs> you question. You guys should have seen Chris's Feast. He's lit up So What if that Friday is on June 29th? Uh, I think it, it, get, it gets moved. It, it gets, gets moved transferred. Or Peter and Paul gets moved. I'll bet Peter and Paul get smooth. Yeah, probably.
1: Yeah, that's great. But they're wow. in the same level. They're the same, yeah. Hmm. Well, there you have it, folks. An answer to one question and an almost answer to another question. <laughs> and it may be a question you've never even thought of. Before, <laughs> right. Because most people
0: who know who do prayer at all that the hours don't often do see, evening prayer one the night before. See, but this morning.
2: is this is getting really into the weeds though. But let's say it's Saturday night, June 29th. Okay. Do you what? when you go to mass that night. Should that be for Saints Peter and Paul, or should it be the Sunday or should it be vigil? for the the Sunday of what is that? The twelve Sunday ordinary time? after four o'clock. I don't know. Yeah. See, it says clearly you should do evening prayer too because Saints Peter and Paul's solemnity and it ranks higher than a Sunday in ordinary time. So evening prayer that night is supposed to be for Peter and Paul. But
0: the vigil mass. If, is if you for go the to the
2: mass, uh, it can kind of go either way. I think most places would celebrate the the massive anticipation for that Sunday because that's at least a Holy Day of Obligation.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Well, there you have it. All right, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless.
0: Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.